Good morning, family. Good morning. Yeah, it's a good morning indeed. It's, it's, it's good for you. It's good for me to be with you this morning. Uh, if I told my grandmother, <clears throat> my little 70-year-old Puerto Rican grandmother that I was preaching in shorts, she would have a heart attack. <laughs> but here I am, and I'm glad I get to do it with you. Um, this probably be like the first and last time in my life, so... I just want to thank you for that. Yeah, I'm here. And that's because she's not going to watch the video. You know what I mean? So, um, but are you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Yeah, all right. That's great. Uh, I'm going to let you know right now, uh, with me, you have the freedom to let your inner Pentecostal out. Okay? So you can talk back to me. Okay? I'm just going to submit that to you. Um, if you would open your Bibles, though, to Proverbs 3. And Proverbs 6. There will be our first text this morning, but we're actually going to be jumping around uh, quite a bit. As you know, a series like this, Fight for Joy, is, is not really normative for us. It's not really uh, sort of how we preach the Bible uh, topically in this way, selective scriptures. Um, but that's not to say that there's something wrong with this style of preaching. I want to get this right out. There's nothing wrong with this style of preaching. It's just not our bread and butter. We are books of the Bible, like whole portion, exegetical style preaching. And so sort of this expositional way of preaching is, is not really uh, our bread and butter. But we're here, we're doing it. The Lord has saw fit that we would be doing this together. And so as you're sort of getting both your fingers in those places, I want to frame up our time this morning because something we need to understand in the beginning right now or else all the past weeks doesn't make any sense. Anything that I'm about to say in this moment doesn't make any sense is that this fight, this fight for joy is not a battle of morality, right? This fight is not a fight over morality. Every day, you and I, we don't wake up and enter the crucible of being a good person. That's not our fight. Instead, every minute that you spend alive is a fight for your affections, a fight for your desires, a fight for your Joy. See, the fight for joy has morality as the result, but not the object of the fight. If we could read Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7, they read as so. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. If you're like a Bible Writer, like me, my Bible's all like graffitied up. That's the highlight right there. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And do you see that, family? Immediately right there, do you see trust in the Lord? The, the Hebrew there is saying a person who trusts in the Lord is a person who throws himself totally on God with all of their personage. And he will make straight their paths. What does that mean? It means that the paths are made straight for those who do not trust in themselves, but for those whose affections are positioned towards God's glory. 
and live in constant relationship with him. That's the Hebrew for in all your ways acknowledge him. It's, a, it's actually a relational communicative uh, uh, phrasing there. So it's saying throw yourself. Not lean on, not recline on, but throw yourself. All of your affections, all of your thinking, your surrendered will, throw yourself on him and he makes straight the path. The proverb doesn't say, trust in the Lord and your path will be straight. Nor does it say, trust in the Lord and go make straight your own path. And too often, in in my experiences, Discipleship is often centered around, conversations are, are, on Christian living are often centered around moral fortitude, right? They're often centered around how good we can be, for how long we can be that good. But that's not to say that we have a license to wake up every morning and go outside and be nasty, right? No, that's not what this is saying. The reality is is that God is not tolerant of our sin. God is not pleased with our sin. And it's not God's intention that you and I remain in our sinfulness. No, God wants us to walk in joy. As your brother in Christ and fellow pastor here, it is my hope to see you walk in joy, that your joy may be complete in the Lord. But if you're, if you're sort of following me logically though, right, there's a question you're probably coming to, right? If you sort of cleared your mind of anything before I got up here and now you're following me through here, there's a question that you're asking. What is joy to the Christian then? What is joy? And this isn't a question of salvation, right? This can be another problem we develop in our uh, walk with Jesus. Now we love the gospel. And we love what it means for our salvation. But we have no understanding or comprehension of what does the gospel mean for us after we've received it. This question, what is joy, is not a question of your salvation. And I hope that if you are not in the faith here this morning, that by the end of this you would see the beautiful call and feel the Lord's tug on you to, to embrace and receive the gospel, to walk in His love. But the question I'm asking right now, the question that we've sort of logically come to, is what is true joy for the Christian? Not a salvific question we're asking. No, on the other side of salvation, what is joy? True joy to the Christian. Jesus says in John 15, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy be complete. True joy is found in Jesus and keeping His commands. That's obedience, right? But if you still think that this fight for joy has morality at the center of it, then God give you ears to hear this morning. You're missing it. You are only so obedient to what you fear. I think it was Tim Keller who used this illustration that nobody reads a book on a sofa 
and sees a cockroach crawl next to them and goes back to reading the book. If you do that, I'm not hearing any amens, so I'm just going to assume that y'all are cool with that. Y'all are nasty. Thank you, sister. See, you elected right there. That's what I'm talking about. Nobody reads a book, sees a cockroach right next to them, and goes, and goes back to reading the book. No, your fear of the roach being there compels you to drop the book, search for the roach, kill it, and disinfect the entire house. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. Mm. You are only so obedient to what you fear. It's in our proverb. Fear the Lord. Sin has you at the center of your affections and fears. But fearing God, and what I mean by fearing God, is beholding His holiness. Keeps Him at the center of your life and keeps your eyes fixed on Him. Remember again, Proverbs 3, 6 and 7. Fear the Lord, acknowledge Him always, and He'll make straight your path. Not having a right fear of the Lord causes us to keep ourselves at the center and thus robs our affections for God and keeping His commands. It is essentially a lack of wisdom, godly wisdom, that keeps us at the center of our lives. And this is why God has given us this beautiful book of promises and sayings. This is why God has given us the gift of the Proverbs with His wisdom to help us keep our fear in place, our trust secure. And the wisdom of God is the foundation for Christian living. Proverbs 9 shows us this clearly, right? This proverb talks to us about the way of wisdom and the way of folly. You see, folly in this proverb is described to us as a beautiful temptress. Lady Folly stands in front of her home. If you read it, she stands in front of her home and she calls out to who? All those whose paths are straight. And she calls them to come into her home of corpses. Lady Folly is an image, a figure of our flesh. Our flesh tempts us with sin, promising us things it cannot give us. And yet we cash those fake checks in, expecting prosperity in return, and all we get is death. We do this constantly. It is a pattern in our lives. In this series, we ask the question, how do we walk in Christ's victory over the patterns of sin, over seven very specific root sins each week, putting under the microscope, if you will, each one so that we can throw ourselves wholly on God and say, I need your help. I have my pride, I have my sloth, my greed and my lust, my envy, my wrath, my gluttony, so that our mighty Father in heaven might deliver us. So would you look at Proverbs 6, 
As my assignment to you this morning is examine the, examining the folly of laziness or slothfulness. I want to give you three types, three heads of this sloth this morning. So let us read God's Word and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Proverbs 6 verses 6 through 11. And it reads, go to the ant, or O sluggard. Some translations have it, O slacker. I like slacker, but I'm committed to the ESV, so. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Would you pray with me, family? Holy and righteous God, we ask you again to sustain us this morning. There are many good things that we've experienced already this morning that we've probably missed. Things that probably feel owed to us, but are really yours, that you give us in your kindness. You woke us up this morning. You made the sun shine on our face. You gave us children and parents to help us, for us to help. You got us here safely. God, we thank you for these small actions of grace, these small letters of love. God, would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ's name, amen. Y'all have to excuse me. I've had a stitch in like the back of my throat for like three days. And I've tried to get it out and it won't, so it's bothering me. No, it's like it's in here. The fan ain't going to do nothing. R.C. Sproul says, time is the great equalizer. It's the only thing that everyone receives equally. The clock plays no favorites. It It doesn't matter if you're married or single, have real babies or fur babies, grandbabies. Doesn't matter what your race is, what kind of job you got. What kind of family you were born into. We all get the same amount of time. 1,440 minutes every day. And just by way of confession, I can assure you that I have wasted more of those minutes than I have put them to good use. And I can confess to you even that the one place my wonderful wife has gifted me The conversation of having is about my wasted time. So I want you to be confident that as you hear me talk about laziness, I am the chief among you of lazy people. Like all things in this world, time is God's. God created it and so it is his. Can't you see in that statement alone how loving it is of God to give us such a thing as time? 
And as loving as giving his children time is, he also gives limits, boundaries to this time. You have 24 hours. That's it. That's love. That's love. God has determined what goodness and perfection would be in his administered gift of time. It is because of the love that God has for you that you have any time on your hands at all. Because limited time here for the Christian is just a reminder of the infinite time with God in the New Jerusalem. It's just a small piece, a very finite piece, a very microscopic piece of the infinite, immeasurable amount of time in His presence. But it is limited, the time we have here, right? Perfect as God made it to be. It's limited. And in God's extended kindness, He creates His children to be stewards of His things. You have responsibilities, roles that you are called to while you are here in this world. Gardens that God has called you to tend, lent to you, to nurture, to care for, for His glory and your joy. You see, joy is found in the bad days and good days because joy, true joy, is living every moment in light of the one whom time does not bind. God is not bound by it. Since he made it, it cannot shape his days. It does not motivate his ways. It does not master him. Joy is held tightly when our days are lived faithfully to the one who holds our time. To waste time is to spend it on something that has no value. The time you waste is real. It belongs to someone. It's not imaginative. And the person to whom your time belongs to is not you. Laziness is a time thief. Laziness is an assumption that you have more of what's not promised to you, God's time. Laziness, slothfulness is an entitlement to that which doesn't belong to you. Laziness has soul-destroying capabilities and lacks compassion for others. Laziness seeks to rob God of His time and doesn't love others well at all. For those walking the straight path of Proverbs 3, laziness entices you with self-gratifying seduction tactics. But when you enter her home, all her residents are dead. Laziness testifies to others that your God is Yourself. It's not a quality that is compatible with fellowship, brotherhood, and sisterhood. It doesn't serve anyone well. Proverbs 10.26 says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. I don't know about vinegar in the teeth. That's weird. But I know about smoke in the eyes. 
It's something I've experienced before. I used to be a youth pastor once upon a time. And we would have like these, these bonfires and then you would worship around the fire. It would never fail that wind would just blow the smoke in someone's direction because we're in a circle, right? We're smart like that. And the wind would always blow the smoke in someone's direction and it would get in their face. And you would see their eyes begin to get red and watery and itch. And now you're not paying attention. You're uncomfortable. It bothers. It annoys. It causes pain. Right? That's what laziness does to the corporate gathering. It distracts. It doesn't contribute. It annoys. It causes pain. It assumes the grace of God and the grace of others will still be given to you as you abuse them both. You hearing me this morning? You say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to preach this way. <laughs> it assumes the grace of God and the grace of others will still be given to you while you abuse them both. Laziness looks simple, right? In your mind's eye, right now, you have a picture of laziness. More than likely, so not all of you, maybe some of you, this idea of laziness, this picture of laziness, doesn't involve you in that picture. It looks like your kids playing too much video games. It looks like something your dad might have said a long time ago. Don't save for tomorrow what you could do today. It looks like people at work. It looks like somebody who doesn't have the same political alignings as you. It looks like a certain person in your mind's eye. You have a picture of laziness that looks simple. As a brown-skinned brother in America, the assumption on me is laziness. It gets presumed upon me often. The point is, is that there's a picture of laziness in your mind. And it looks simple. But it's not. Laziness is actually very complex. Very, very complex. This sloth, right? This sloth has three heads, and you can be grateful for the image of a three-headed sloth. It's disgusting. You're welcome. My hope this morning is that God would grant you the wisdom to see where we can all repent from our affections towards being lazy and run toward God and have joy. I want to steer you away also from the idea that you and I are going to fit neatly into one of these three types. But rather, we are the sloth. We contain all three of these. This is a framework to help us understand the root of laziness. The first head on the sloth, the first kind of product laziness creates, is the sluggard. The sluggard. This is the most common personhood of laziness. There's, the, the, the word sluggard is interesting because it comes from the word slug, which is not a beautiful creature. And if you think slugs are pretty, I'm on the pulpit and you're not. So I'm right and you're wrong. Slugs are disgusting looking. I like slugs. Oh, God, Riley. I heard it in your voice. Yeah, I know. I'm a slugger. 
But the sluggard means to be habitually lazy. That's not really helpful, though. So biblically, we look to the definition, and the Bible tends to define things for us. And in the Bible, the sluggard is considered to be an idle person. An idle person. The person who doesn't move or moves slow to do the important things. Look at the text, the Proverbs 6 text. This is wisdom for the idle. The sluggard is to look towards the ant. The ant has no need to be prodded and reminded to work in its time. You see, the sluggard oversleeps regularly. The sluggards are masters of their own comforts. The sluggard is idle and apathetic. The irony here is that the sluggard actually works incredibly hard, incredibly hard to create its own lifestyle. To be a sluggard takes an incredible amount of practice. Practice to give in to your natural inclination to not do. The more you practice it, the more deceitful you'll be about it. The more manipulative you'll become about keeping your environment intact. The sluggard is full of excuses, always having a reason why things that should have been done are not done. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. This text shows us that the sluggard is anxious and not focused. The eyes of the sluggard are not on the things that God has given them to do, to work at, to be diligent and faithful and fruitful at, but rather their eyes are on the many things outside that could bring them harm. Or they're pulled away from important things by the many interests they have. To do God's work is secondary to my entertainment and leisure. Why? Because the sluggard's God is not God. It's its own self, and it worships itself with leisure. Comfort. And these things dull our senses over time, no? Right? Amen. Amen. That was... Hey, listen... I, that was loud. <laughs> Hot take. Uh, Epcot is boring. <laughs> that joke never goes over well. <laughs> but it's true. Unless you're going for food and wine festival, it's not fun. Ah, oh, let's go to China and try their Coke. Okay. <laughs> no, Epcot's boring. Now that's that. The the point is, is entertainment can get old. How many times do we watch a show and then we get bored with the show? How many times do we find a new thing to entertain ourselves with, and then after a while that thing just becomes. Okay. Entertainment can dull, abused entertainment can dull our senses. But the sluggard is also a celebrated part of American life, no? Work for 25 years, then kick back at home and relax. 
as if Titus 2 is not a garden you are called to tend. Older women disciple the younger. Older men disciple the younger. See, the, the slugger doesn't respond like Paul who says, I exist to be spent. The sluggard uses good things to not do the hard things. An excuse I've heard many times before as a young adult, before I was married, before I had children, as I was in the church, before I was even saved in the church, trying to find a mentor and someone older than me is, I'm too busy, I have a family. As if my future wife and children and I would not be blessed by watching this man be a father in his home, be a husband in his home. I'm not asking for a Bible study. I'm asking for discipleship. Titus 2 uses good things to not do the hard things. You hearing me this morning? Derek Kidner says in his commentary on Proverbs, the wise man will learn while there's still time. He knows that the sluggard is no freak, but as often as not, an ordinary man who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many postponements. Due to the fall, lady tempts us with laziness. The sluggard is probably the most common picture you think when laziness is said out loud. The one who doesn't work, but the sluggard works. And yet work is not a product of the fall, right? It's not work that is the curse. No. The fall didn't introduce work. The fall changed how work hits us. And that's where the sluggard is born. Controlling the content of its work so it can escape the consequences of working hard. The sluggard not only works for the wrong thing, but he works for the wrong reasons. But there's another type of laziness. The other person, the second person, the second head of the sloth is the workaholic. The person who works and works and works and works and works. Busyness gives you no immunity from laziness. You could recognize the sins of neglect, procrastination, overindulgence, abuse of rest, and still not recognize the total gambit of laziness. The workaholic is busy. Busy taking care of to-do lists filled with secondary things of importance. A lot of us here have many things that the Lord has called us uh, two, has given us the responsibility to work in. However, for some of us, there are some things that God did not put on your plate. Not every opportunity is the right opportunity for the right season. Busyness does not equal diligence. Busyness does not equal faithfulness. Busyness does not equal fruitfulness. In the madness of our lives, busyness makes you forget that you have a soul that needs tending to. I heard once, I don't know who said it, so if you know it, you can tell me. But they said busyness has killed more Christians than bullets do. That's heavy. But how can we know? How can we see what the lazy busy is? And here, in my opinion, is no greater teachers of this than two wonderful women of God, Martha and Mary. If you would, or quick with it, turn to Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. And it reads like this. 
Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted, say distracted, with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing, say one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says, one thing is necessary, time with me. If you have no time to have unhurried time with God, then your busyness has led to sinfulness. And this assumes that you already have unhurried time with your family and the other people you are accountable for. See, there are priorities and there are secondary things. Your soul, your family's soul, the people in your church, these are gardens that the God of time has called you to tend. Workaholics use labor to center themselves around themselves. Your goals, your accomplishments, your accolades. And this is not what God has given us work for. Our work, even in the secular world, is different than secular perspectives. Our work, whether you're in the sacred field or the secular field, exists for the good of others. To give your life to the grind, to busy yourself with things, doesn't constitute diligence. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. In the Hebrew writing, the poverty here is not a financial poverty. It's a snare of death, a poverty of the soul. Busyness is laziness, because when you're too busy to steward correctly, you're not stewarding faithfully. You don't have time to love your spouse well. You don't have time to raise your children well, not provide entertainment for. I'm talking about soul tending, heart nurturing, raising up your children. You don't have time to tend to church. You don't have time to make it to Bible study. You don't have time to have someone over for dinner. You don't have time to make it to community group. You don't have time to make it to the next thing the church is doing. No, workaholics like the sluggards put self in place of God and center their lives around that. Neither lives to love, neither lives to worship, and yet there is one more person in the laziness trinity. The zombie. The zombie is a desireless person. It's a laziness that steals from stewardship. They may live a busy life, but it's just enough was done to get back to enjoying comforts. Responsibilities are taken care of, but only for presentation's sake. The zombie performs so it can get what it craves, comfort. The zombie sleepwalks all week, but he lives on the weekends. The zombie lives on autopilot, hardly notices anything around them. They let things run their course so they can just get on with their lives. These are people who wake up, work because they have to, do only what is required and not what is excellent, come home, 
do whatever needs to be done there with one thing on their minds, the sofa. This deadly laziness, as one commentator puts it, the zombie is trying to preserve personal comforts through the candy of endless amusements. Sloth is a chronic quest for worldly comfort that compounds boredom. Boredom with God, boredom with people, boredom with life. The zombie's things of first importance are its own interests. It has lost the desire to love and lost taste for what is truly satisfying. It comes to church, but it's not really here. It's not paying attention to the salvific bomb that can revive its heart. It sits in the chairs in opposition to the preacher's words, looking for triggering buzzwords and phrases. It doesn't come to hear from God, but rather what it expects to hear from God. It has no peace. It comes to the Lord's table with the next big game on its mind. It is focused on what the world offers. It has moved into Lady Folly's home and has made residence among the dead there. I want to remind you, family, that there are three persons to laziness. And you and I have the sinful fruit of all three of them. The sluggard idolizing free time. The workaholic seeking self-constructed self-worth. And the zombie who sleepwalks through life. Like all three, we have removed God from the center of our lives and have eaten the fruit of our own sinfulness. All three have set aside the joy that God has set before them and traded it for temporary, non-lasting joy. God does not enjoy the presence of the sloth. The slothful takes the God things the good things that God has given us for our flourishing and twist them in the name of their own gain. The family, God is not lazy. God is not lazy. He does not work so that we can be free from diligent, faithful stewardship. It is His kindness that work is an intention for humanity from the start. It is not a product of the fall. Work did not enter in with sin. Sin made work and lack of work sinful. But God is in the business of comfort. But being comforted by God is not the same thing as working yourself to be comfortable. There is no faithful saint in heaven who says confidently, that God delivered them from their sin so that they can be comfortable on their couch. We have not been designed to live in a state of perpetual vacation. Family, there is hope for the sloth this morning. There is hope for the sloth this morning. There is hope for you and I. Yet there is one who did all the work so that we wouldn't have to live with work as our God. There is one who worked hard to comfort us in his righteousness that doesn't result in our comfort here in this world. When all was bleak in the garden and sin had entered the world and the cosmos was fractured, God went to work. I just watched the Chronicles of Narnia last month. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I was reading it with my kids. We finished the book. So let's watch the movie. And if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you, but I'm also about to butcher it. It is much better than what I'm about to communicate to you. But the whole movie preaches. But there's one scene specifically that preached to me. Can I share it with you? Yes. Narnia is this magical place, right? And these four young children just happen to enter there on accident. 
It's snowing and it's cold. And as one of the inhabitants tell them, it's always winter and never Christmas. In this world, the witch Jadis rules. And she is wicked. She is the reason for the cold. She is the reason why there's fear among the people. Why there's fear among the creatures who live there. But at a dinner table with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, Mr. Beaver explains that though there is fear, though there is discomfort, though it is always winter and never Christmas, they have hope. He says, Aslan is on the move. All church. When Adam and Eve sinned, God was on the move. He sacrificed an animal to provide them clothing. When the sinfulness of this world was just too much to bear, God was on the move. He sent his son to die in his enemy's place so that the enemies can become family. Our church, there is hope for the sloth. Our sinfulness demands our death, but God did not let that stand. He sent his son Jesus to come to work, work on our behalf, living perfectly, keeping the law rightly, loving his neighbors mercifully so that you and I can be privileged to do the same. Whether you're a sluggard, a workaholic, or a zombie, there is room for you at the cross. God can redeem you. You are not without hope. Ask God to search your heart. Examine yourself prayerfully and rigorously. Find the places you have believed the empty lies of comfort this world promises but can't deliver and repent. Repent from your idolatry. Confess your laziness and live beholding the holiness of God so that your joy may be full and you may keep his commands, would you stand with me and worship?